said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. Robert Granger. Let's have a prayer before we go much further. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity of learning about you this morning, of being challenged by your word and being changed by your word, being cleansed by your word. Instruct us this morning, I pray, open up our eyes. We pray in your wonderful name. Amen. It was a, uh, a hot summer's day there in Adelaide. Darlene and I were members of a, well, it was a, large, it was a church, large physical structure with not that many uh, people who were in attendance and those that were tended to be a few old folk. And so it was a hot summer's day and uh, we were sitting down. We're on the right-hand side of the church and uh, there was a lady up front preaching and there was the aisle off to our left and, and a little to, to the front and, and left of us, there was a little bit of a commotion. And seeing this lady there and she's all just a little frail lady with her husband next door and, and she's all slumped over. And I looked around and no one was making a move and my goodness, I'm a, I'm a dermatologist, I'm not a first responder. You know, and I um, thought, well, there's no one else here. I better do my, uh, my dutiful thing. As what happened to me a few weeks ago flying to Melbourne, it's just always like, I hate when this call happens. Is, is there a doctor on board the plane? And right at that instant, there's this air hostess walking towards me, and it's like you just feel this compulsion to, and I did. Yes, and, you know, and, off, and off you go. And um, anyway, so here's this lady... And, and I start walking across to her because there's one thing that I've, I've sort of learned from, from uh, ambulance officers and paramedics. It seems like they never seem to run to the scene of an emergency. And it's like, well, you hurry, you know, and they're just walking along with their bag, you know, and they make their way there. So I just walked across to this lady and sat beside her and, oh, my goodness, I, you know, I'm listening for a breath and I'm, I'm feeling for the breath and I'm not, you know, just listening, trying to feel the pulse. No, there's no pulse. And, oh, my goodness. I'm thinking, am I witnessing my first death in church? <laughs> I was serious. I, so I laid her down. That would be a good next move, wouldn't it? Lay her down. Reassessed her. At that moment, around about that time, her husband jumps up, turns around, starts walking towards the back of the church and he says something that I will never forget because it was just such I guess <laughs> a stunning thing to say those those words were just are now etched in my memory as he spins around and starts walking down to the back of the church turns around and he says I think she's had it Well, as it turns out, she hadn't had it. Um, blood sugars were really low, didn't eat breakfast. She was dehydrated. It was a hot day and she was finally roused and just in a deep sort of faint and everything turned out good. Well, this morning I want to share a story with you from Scripture about a man who had nearly had it. In fact, it was a, a life-changing encounter with with, uh, with Jesus and, 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 we, and I want to share this story with you because I think it's a pretty stunning story you know Jesus interacts with all kinds of people he, he interacts with those who are in trouble that, had, that was not of their doing Jesus also interacts with people who are in strife as a result of their own choices and this man well he fell into that latter category he was in trouble because of a series of choices that he had made earlier in his life. Now, let's not all be pious here with each other. Who hasn't made some tremendously stupid mistakes in their life? <laughs> like the time 
I, was, uh, I had an old car. Its handbrake wasn't working all that well. And um, I, I, there, was a, there was a post box on the side of the road and I had a letter to post. And I wanted to post that letter and like, I could have driven right up to it and popped it were it not for the fact the little opening was just on the other side of the box. And I thought, well, this, and the street was on a little bit of an incline. I thought, well, what can I do here? And so I schemed up this idea. Well, if I just kind of got the car running and gave it a little bit of momentum, I could quickly jump out, post the thing, get back into the car before it started rolling backwards. Because, you know, sometimes in life I don't do things simply. I like a challenge for myself. I like life to be a little bit fun. And so I thought, okay, well, I just can't just do it. I'm going to have to practice this scheme. So you get a little bit of momentum up. Okay, right about now is probably when I'm going to bundle out of the car. How long is it going to take for the car to start slowing down? Okay, can I imagine myself posting that by now? Am I going to be back in the car? I'm not going to tell you the end of that story. Okay, so, so the, second, the second story was when Dale and I were living in Tassie. And out in the front yard, I'm standing there one day noticing all of these wasps flying into a hole, sort of in the lawn up against the fence. And I thought, wow, there's just not one or two. There's hundreds heading down to this little subterranean little nest. Can't have this. I mean, this could be a disaster walking past here and we could really get stung to pieces. I've got to do something about this. So I went and spoke with Darlene, said, uh, would you like to take care of that um, wasp nest? Actually, I didn't. I said, uh, I, I need to tackle this nest. Um, what I need to do is I'm going to get all dressed up. I'm going to put multiple layers of clothes on. I'm going to then put on this nice Gore-Tex over jacket. And I had these over pants, these Gore-Tex pants, and I put those and I got gum boots and, I, and we got some masking tape and we, and we sort of masked up the gum boots to, to the over pants there and I had it on these leather gloves and, I, and we, we put all stuff around there to make sure nothing went in. I made sure that the jacket was also taped around the belly to make sure nothing went up inside. And then I got myself a crash helmet, put that on, and then put a hood on top of that and a little cutout and again taped that all around the place. And I was ready to go. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what I was looking like? Well, you know what? You don't have to imagine much longer because that's <laughs> me. So there I was. And as I made my way towards that wasp nest, I started to think of what might be in tomorrow's headline in the Mercury there in Tasmania. Student doctor dies from multiple wasp bites. And as I edged my way towards that, that wasp nest, I thought, no, nah, can't do it. All that came off again, all the clothing, and instead I made myself up a petrol bomb, and that was far more exciting. Now, notice that I didn't tell you some of my failures there. I sort of stopped short. I was like some, what could have been some planned failures, but uh, this story is written out in all of its raw detail, and it's in the book of John, and uh, at least turn to the book of John. You know, John is an interesting book. This story is only found in John. There's four Gospels, correct? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels because their stories often parallel each other. If you find one in Matthew, there's a good chance you might find one in, in Luke. Or if Mark has one, it's, it's probably in John, uh, sorry, probably in, uh, in, in one of the other two. They, they kind of parallel each other. So hence the synoptic Gospels. But John is very, very different. I remember I was a teenager, I would have been either 17 or 18 years of age and living in New Zealand at the time during my last two years of high school there and getting up and doing a lot of skiing and, and the time came for the conference to put and host on a ski camp and so naturally I was up there for that as well and the spiritual mentor for the week was, was Elder, was Pastor um, Jeffrey Garn, I think his name was, does that sound right? He was the then editor of the record way back when. And, and, and he came across, and I remember, I remember, in fact, very few things from my teenage years, at least of a spiritual nat nature, and, uh, and I remember he, he shared a fact at that time. 
And it's for some bizarre reason, I've just remembered this statistic. I've never tried to validate that, but even if he's out by one or two percent, I guess it's, it's still pretty impressive. And that is, he said that 94% of the book of John is unique to John. You're not going to find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Now, more than that, if you just come with me towards the last couple of chapters of the book of John, John chapter, John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and I sure hope you've got your swords with you. If you don't have the, the printed word, open, open up your, uh, your, your app in your phone. Uh, follow along. It's going to be really important that you follow along. John chapter 20 and verse 30, and it said, and this is what John says, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, if they're not written in this book, they're surely not written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then he says this, the very last verse of the last chapter of this gospel, this is what he says. John chapter 21 and verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wow. So, so what John is telling us is that the overwhelming majority of what Jesus did and said while he was here on this earth, is not written. We don't have a record of it. It's just not there. And in fact, what it does also tell me is that what is written has been put down for an extremely important reason. That the Holy Spirit has impressed these authors to write down what they did for a really important reason. Perhaps what is written is representative of all of those other things that was not, in fact, written down. And I'd like you to turn to John chapter 5, because this is where we find our story. John chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porches. The meaning of Bethesda, house of mercy, house of grace. And I can tell you what went on there was everything but. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. You know, I, I think of really what's happening here at the pool, the pool of Bethesda. I really see this as being a representation of planet Earth. I see it as being the world. And I see this great multitude that, that is spoken about here as fallen humanity in need of healing. You know, they're accustomed to life around the pool, unable to escape from it. And there was this common belief, and we see this in verse 4, there was this common belief that an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. You know, it may have been a strange belief. We have no idea if anyone was ever healed by that method. There's no record of it. It was probably just simply one of those stories. Just like today, there are a lot of stories, there's a lot of religions, there's a lot of doctrines out there, a lot of teachings about how we can escape the pool. It doesn't mean they're correct. It doesn't mean that they're truthful. I understand that there's something like over 4,000 religions in the world, but it depends on how you classify things because I've seen another statistic which says that there are approximately 35,000 religions on planet Earth. All have got their own little take on things, as did this group called Heaven's Gate. Anyone remember Heaven's Gate? You, you would remember that being an American, um, Carol. Uh, Heaven's Gate, founded by this lady and a man, and very strange background, but... They, uh, they said about they were in at that stage in the San Diego area in California, Southern California, and they um, came up with an idea as how they were going to escape planet Earth. 
they discovered that there was a comet that, with a trajectory coming towards planet Earth. Well, it was never going to hit here, of course. It was still a long way away, but it swung around and it was coming towards planet Earth. And they came up with a scheme where what they were going to do is get onto the planet, uh, onto the, the comet, and make their way out into the universe. But before they did that, they had to leave their bodies on this earth. And the whole 39 of them entered into a suicide pact and that's how the authorities found them. 1997. You know, some speak about the Bible, which I kind of like this, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, as an acronym for basic instructions before leaving earth. I kind of like that. Basic instructions before leaving earth. And, and so here we find this man. He's wanting to escape the pool. And we find here in verse 4, as we just read, that after the stirring of the water, whoever was made well of whatever disease he had, that's what would happen to that individual. If they get into the water first, he'd be made well. Now, I want you to pay close attention. Have you got your Bible with you? I want you to read through with me as we make our way through this. And I'm just asking whoever... I want you to count how many times that we come across this phrase, depending on how it's mentioned in, in your version. Mine is New King James Version, and it speaks of this is be, of being made well. Uh, yours might be the word healed. It might be some other variant of that. But follow along with me. Count how many times we go through. At the very end, when I call on it, I, the first person to come up here and tell me the correct number is going to walk away with a little gift. So here we go. All right. Here it is. All right. So let's uh, take a look now in verse 5. It's kind of interesting because in verse 5 it says that uh, now a certain man. Why did it use the word certain? I would have been just quite happy if it, if it simply read, Now a man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. That, that would have read just perfectly fine, correct? But it says, Now a certain man. Well, why did it say a certain man? Well, I believe because there was a degree of notoriety about this individual. This was just no regular man. This was a certain man. This man had a history. You know, it's kind of good to be famous for the right reason rather than for the wrong reason, if you get what I mean. You know, someone like Ralph Harris was... Uh, Rolf Harris was famous for the right reason and then quickly turned to becoming famous for the wrong reason. You, you get the drift. You want to be famous for the right reason and this man may not have been famous for the right reason. We don't, we don't know why he had that notoriety. Maybe he was in one of the individuals who had been around the pool for the longest period of time, the longest serving tenant there at the pool of Bethesda. Maybe everyone recognised his history, where he had come from. Maybe it was his physical state, you know, the, just the worst of the worst. Whatever is the case, this certain man had been there for 38 years. Now, I'm interested in what um, Ellen White had to actually say on, on this section. If you've never read the book Desire of Ages, if you do not own a copy of that book Desire of Ages, please speak with me after because I'll be very happy to help you out. But in that book, I appreciate how she describes this man. She says that when Jesus saw him, she saw, he saw in, in this man a case, she writes, Jesus saw in this man a case of supreme wretchedness. Supreme wretchedness. Here he was, this wizened up little old man, trapped on his, on his little mat on the floor, probably the kind of bloke who couldn't easily get to you know, the public facilities in time and who knows what there was around him. It, wasn't, it would not have been a pleasant sight. And Jesus comes up to him, verse 6, and sees him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. How did Jesus know that? 
was this man so well known throughout Jerusalem? Had his disciples already warned him as Jesus makes his way into the pool? Oh, Lord, are you sure you want to go in there? Because, oh my goodness, you might come across this man. You don't, you don't want to see this man. Who's, who's, could it be that, that the father spoke to, to Jesus on the prior evening as Jesus was in prayer with, with his father and, and the father says to him, son, I want you to go to the pool of Bethesda tomorrow. You're going to see a man there. He's been there for 38 years. You know what to do. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I just don't know. And Jesus asks him, he says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? In Scripture, there is this, this nice relationship between health and salvation. In fact, truly, they can be interchangeable terms often throughout Scripture. Save, healing, salvation, health. In fact, it's pretty explicit in one section, if I could just read it to you from Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 14, it says this, Jeremiah praying for deliverance. He says, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. Just simply illustrating this relationship between those two, those two words. In, in, in other words, when Jesus was extending an invitation and it was an invitation this was not something that Jesus was going to foist on this individual it was an invitation and Jesus when he is asking him do you want to be made well in effect Jesus may as well have been asking him do you want to be saved do you want to be saved you know, it's an interesting question, and for those of us who are sort of in the health-related kind of domain as a profession at least, and you need not even be that to appreciate what I'm about to say, and that is that, and it might seem a strange thing to you as I say this, but it's true, that not everyone who is sick wants to be healed of their malady. There are some people who are just very content and very happy to just go on with just the way they are because at the end of the day, there are some benefits in playing this or, or, or somehow being involved in what we'd refer to as the sick role. You might attract a little bit more attention. People might fluff around you a little bit more. There might potentially be the loss of certain financial benefits that come from being made well and trust me I have seen individuals just you know I've got a medication that will absolutely clear your skin of this condition you don't have to suffer with this no 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 it's okay just get me a little bit more comfortable but don't eradicate it I find that a phenomenal thing but it's true and Jesus was making absolutely no assumption when he came to this man and said do you want to be made well do you do you want to be saved and a question like this surely demands one of two responses. What are they? It's going to be a yes or a no. Do you want to be made well? Yes or no? The man doesn't answer that way. We see the response of, of this man. The sick man answered him, Sir... I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. His response to me suggests a man in deep despair. It suggests someone who is, who is at, well, he's just feeling totally helpless. He's feeling close to being had it. He's tried it. It doesn't work. He's frustrated by his failed attempts at saving himself, at healing himself. You know, we left to ourselves. You know that. I know that. We know that. We cannot, we cannot save ourselves. We don't get to leave the pool on our terms. Divine intervention is needed. In fact, more than this, I believe that the response from this man, the implicit response, that is, 
It's not explicit. It's not written down. It's implied, I believe, that he was really asking a question. This man was really saying, you know, I've tried. I've failed. I'm still here. Sir, what must I do to be saved? You know that question, don't you? Who else asked that question? Remember the rich young ruler? Yep, that's the one. That's mentioned in two of the synoptic gospels, Mark chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19 and also Mark chapter 10. I kind of like the, the Mark version because of one particular word that's being used there, Mark chapter 10. And this is in, starting in verse 17 where the rich young ruler comes running out to Jesus, kneels down before him and says, Good teacher! What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus gives him a response. And I love how in verse 21 it says this, Jesus looking at him, loved him. This was a really, really, really special person. Jesus saw in this man, this, this, this rich young man who probably had a lot of very genuine friends around him because he was probably an incredibly likable bloke, thought, here is someone who could, who could follow me. He, he, could be one of, he could make up one of my group of disciples. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a special man. And, you know, you probably have in your life someone who's, who's really special, and I don't mean... You know, a spouse. I mean, like another friend, and you know, you just you just bond. You know, a little bit like say, David and and Jonathan. You know, they loved each other like they loved their own flesh. There's just there's just something. And Jesus bonded with this young man and 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 loved him. But Jesus said, "You you lack one thing, friend. I just want you to go sell what you have." Give it to the poor, put treasure into heaven and, and take up the cross and I want you to follow me. And the, the story was that that man at that point, he turned away very sorrowful because in fact he had so many possessions and couldn't see the sense in what Jesus had said. But someone else asked that question in the New Testament. Can you think of who else said, asked that question, what must I do to be saved? Can anyone think of where else that is in Scripture? I'll give you a hint. Paul and Silas. Remember they were locked up there in the jail of Philippi and you'll see that, uh, that story in Acts chapter 16 and you know that earthquake came and shook the place and, you know, and everyone was out and about to escape and, and, and Paul calls out to the jailer he says, do yourself no harm for we are all here. The jailer turns around and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And then Jesus, back in John chapter 5, heals the man. He heals him. He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. And one of the main points, in fact, of this whole thing is about the Sabbath, which we are not, in fact, going to touch on. But the man was made well. Let me ask you a question. Who is the maker of all things? Who made all things? Can you give me a verse in Scripture that speaks about Jesus who made all things? Oh, it's still here in John. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things. Now catch this. It's said three times in this verse. Chapter 1 and verse 3 of John. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Here we have the creator of the universe. Here with this man, and I don't believe, I don't believe that Jesus 
was as, and I love Nathan Green's artwork and I'm probably going to buy one of these uh, ones and hang that on my wall as I have some other Nathan Greens at, at work. I, I, I kind of don't think, I, I don't think, and I've got no reason to, to really believe this, but I, I just don't see that Jesus is standing uh, you know, at, at the foot of this man and just saying, hey, do you want to be made well? You know, let me just, you know, here, I'll give you a hand up here. I kind of think that Jesus, Jesus sort of squatted down in amongst the stench, came to him face to face. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Well, rise, take up your bed and walk. This man trusted Jesus to make him whole. He acted on the word of Jesus and was made whole. Jesus, the maker of all things, and I I just love this in, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. Follow this one with me. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse five. Count the different names of Jesus. Here we go, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse five. For your maker, that's number one, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Six different names of Jesus right there in that one verse. This is the man that that the paralytic is interacting with. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And he believed it. You know what? We are no more able to live a holy life than this palsied man was able to walk apart from Christ. You know, it was impossible for him physically and it is impossible for us spiritually. It's simply not going to happen apart from Christ. And then we read on. The Jews said, oh, you know, it's not lawful for this to happen on the Sabbath. And he answered them, verse 11, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And then they said, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed didn't know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn, there being a multitude in that place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Sin no more. Some people will struggle with that. But at the very least, Jesus is saying, you know what? Put yourself into this problem. You know what? You're just going to have to do a 180. And you've got to head in the other direction. The things that you found appealing in the past, the, 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 the music that you listen to, you, you're no longer going to enjoy that when you're with me. The entertainment that you experienced in the past, no, it's, it's not going to have a patch on how you're going to interrelate with me. You know, the food that you once enjoy, and you know what, I've, I've got this, this, this whole banquet here of this other stuff that you're going to enjoy and relish and and, and, and I suspect, I suspect the man was starting in that brief interaction, started to understand and appreciate that Jesus wanted him to live a, a, a different existence. First one up here, tell me how many times made well was mentioned. First time, okay. First one up, first one up. Oh, Angela. <laughs> Angela, well, you know what? Okay, go ahead. Try your best. Six. How many? Six. Who, who else got six? Who else got six? Aha. All right. Well, guess what? I have a second book just for you as well. So you're going to get one later, okay? In fact, Angela, can you take one down to one of the ones who raised their hand and you get a gift? But you know what? You... I'm giving it to you this time, but you're actually wrong. You're actually wrong. It's actually seven. It's seven. But, but, but the seventh is not in the passage that we just read. 
Aha, come to me. Come with me in John chapter 7 and verse 23. We see the end of the story. John chapter 7 and verse 23. And this is where all the, you know, the, the, the church leaders at the time were giving Jesus a hard time. And, and Jesus finally like, that's it. And he starts speaking out. Verse 23. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? That's what he's talking about. Now notice the first six times it's he, this man was made well. Okay, here we go. Made well, made well, made well, made well, made well, made well. Six times. Now, what does it say there in chapter 7 and verse 23? It wasn't just simply made well. How well was he made? He was made, it says, completely well. I love how the King James Version says it. Who's got a King James Version? What does it say, Jesse? What does it say? Every whit hole. I love that, that old English. Every whit hole. There was nothing about this man that wasn't whole. He had been made whole physically. He had been made whole spiritually. And in fact, you know, the interesting thing is that John... The, the, the Greek word for, for well is this word hugius. That's the Greek. Probably not pronouncing it quite right, but from which we get our English word hygiene. John uses that word in all of his gospel, the gospel of John. He uses it seven times only, seven times only, all in reference to this one man. Isn't that beautiful? This, this, this roundness, this perfection, this number seven, it's absolutely beautiful. And I believe that at that point, as that man stood before Jesus now, in his wholeness, I believe that that man was ready for translation. You know, I want to, as we sort of close up here, I want to share with you, and this probably, if anything, is maybe the main point of what I was wanting to share with you today, and that is, I want to share with you what I believe is one of the greatest paradoxes in Christianity. You know, we've, let's have no misgivings. Healing of this man, the salvation of this man, the salvation of us from beginning to end is all about Jesus, correct? It's Jesus from start to finish. Jesus did the invitation. He offered the invitation. Jesus healed him. Jesus provided the aftercare. He said, gave him instructions. This is what you need to do from now on. You know, just after I finish a surgery, you do this. You always have got to talk about aftercare. This is what you need to do to keep the wound clean. This is what you need. You need to come back. We're going to get the stitches out. It's going to take about a month to get that graft all healed. This aftercare. Jesus provided the aftercare. Everything was about Jesus. And as, as that paralytic was healed, we are also saved. It's all, it's all about Jesus. But here is the paradox. What does paradox even mean? Hey Siri. Hey Siri. Uh-huh. Google the meaning of paradox. Hey Siri. Uh-huh. Google the meaning of paradox. Okay, I found this on the web for the meaning of paradox. Check it out. A situation or statement that seems impossible or is difficult to understand because it contains two opposite facts or characteristics. You know, I see paradoxes in medicine. I have patients who come to me, for example, with the referred as, got a rash. You assess and you say, yeah, okay, all right, this person has psoriasis, 100%, it's psoriasis. But the strange thing is, is that they're on a medication that was started by another doctor, for example, a gastroenterologist for their, let's say, ulcerative colitis. 
And they've been put on, for example, a biologic medication such as adalimumab. That's the very same medication that we use to treat psoriasis. And it works spectacularly well and it clears their disease. But here a person put onto that medication for another reason and up comes psoriasis. And so I write back to the referring doctor. Yeah, thanks for referring Jane to see me. This is an interesting situation, but unfortunately she has experienced a paradoxical reaction to adalimumab for treatment of her ulcerative colitis. I suggest that, and, and on the letter goes. Well, here is the paradox. Here it is. We've just established that our salvation, our healing is fully dependent upon Jesus. And here's the paradox, and I don't want you to shoot me down. Give me space, give me time, give me time to finish off what I was going to say. But our salvation is also fully dependent upon ourselves. Whoa, where's Rob going with this? Let's have a look. I'm going to share with you from one of my, one of my favorite little books called Steps to Christ. Look at this, and uh, I'm going to read you this little passage. It is impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunk. In this context, we could probably say it's impossible of ourselves to escape from this cesspool of sin that we're lounging around. Our hearts are evil. We cannot change them. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither, in can, neither indeed can be. Education, culture, the exercise of the will, human effort, all have their proper sphere, but here they are powerless. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. They cannot purify the springs of life. There must be a power working from within, a new life from above, before men can be changed from sin to holiness, and that power is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God and to holiness. But now, let's see the other side to that. And I'm just going forward just a little bit more. To a page here, and I've got to, I don't mind, I won't uh, share the details, but I've got to confess, confess that last year I had a, 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 few, a, few, a few little struggles, and um, because I started to, to doubt how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? And in fact, this is the way in which this paragraph starts. Many are inquiring. How am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You know, it's, in, it's an interesting paragraph because this is one of the very, very, very few occasions where, where the author, Ellen White, actually uses italics, has some italicized words, and it starts off, the word how is italicized. So when I say it, in other words, it's wanting some emphasis. It's not just simply... How am I to make the surrender of myself to God? No, no, no. I'm meant, I'm meant to emphasize that word. It's meant to be something like, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You know, last, a few years ago, I was visiting a, uh, an Adventist church on the eastern states, mid-coast, um, central coast, New South Wales, and guests there, and Sabbath school, little discussion group, 10-odd adults sitting around a circle, and... And somehow this kind of discussion came up and this elderly gentleman who would have been approximately 80 says, you know what, he says, you know, the, the older I get, it's just, you know, this whole sin thing is just such a cinch, you know. It's just like, um, you know, just temptations don't seem to phase me much and just I've just found that, you know, I just get older and I just seem to just get the victory. I'm thinking to myself, wow, it sure hasn't been my... Um, experience maybe it should have been and I couldn't help myself I sort of blurted out at that point I said so uh, sir do you, do you um, suggest um, a sort of a new doctrine one of um, salvation by senility <laughs> and, um, and probably at that point they probably should have kicked me out of the Sabbath school class but uh, friends we don't Jesus doesn't save us just simply because we're getting older. Friends, there's going to be a lot of 100-year-olds who go down to the grave 
and, and are not going to be resurrected to form part of his kingdom. It is not an aging process, friends, that saves us. And it goes on to say, you desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. And last year when I was going through a little difficulty, I, um, I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to a few resources and one of them was this book, Steps to Christ. And I picked up another version of Steps to Christ that I had. And this was given to me many, many years ago when I was a professional observer at Weimar Institute there in California, which ultimately then led to my employment afterwards being there. But I went through with the New Start guests as a guest and as professional observer. And at the end of the program, all the guests, and they are not necessarily even Christian, uh, certainly not Seventh-day Adventists. They could be from whatever background. They are all given this little book, Steps to Christ. And this was the very version that I was given. And, um, and everyone writes in there who are the, uh, the facilitators. So the doctors, the nurses, the physiotherapists, the, the exercise physiologists, they all write a little something here to each guest in their own little special little book. And I came across a statement in here by an elderly doctor at that time who was one smart cookie and passed away now, but uh, I really appreciate Dr. Milton Crane. And he wrote this. He says, Dear Robert, may God bless you and keep you in all his ways. See page 47 for the secret of success. And that's what I'm reading from, from right now as we go through this paragraph. This is the guts of page 47. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. And then here is something interesting. She uses a second italicized word in the same paragraph, a habit that she rarely did in all of her writings. She uses another italicized word, it's as though the first italicized word presents the problem. The second italicized word presents the solution. And here it is. Let's read that sentence again. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. But you can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with him. And so we see this interplay between divinity and humanity. There's God's part and there's our part. We cannot do God's part, although we often try. And God cannot do our part. God does his thing beautifully. And God has an expectation of us. God's part, he invites. Our part, 
we respond. We choose to serve him. We give him our will. God forgives and sanctifies our part. We obey. And I, and I love it. And if I could just go forward just a little bit more in this, in this wonderful book, I just want to share a couple of more quick thoughts. Notice here that obedience is not a mere outward compliance, but the service of love and skipping forward. We do not earn salvation by our obedience. For salvation is the free gift of God to be received by faith. But obedience is the fruit of faith. God's part, our part. The truth as it is in Jesus is profoundly deep on the one hand, yet amazingly simple on the other. And unfortunately, we've distorted that truth. Like, like Luther, for years and years, thought a process of self-flagellation would get him closer to God, or as he climbed up the, 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 the Sancta Scala, the, the, the holy stairs on his knees, as today, even people today would be doing there in Rome. Climb up those stairs. I'm going to earn myself some little brownie point somewhere. Do the rosary. Do, do, do something. And yet you have some people who say, God did it all. There's nothing for us at all to do. God has predestined some to be saved and some to be lost. And then you have the opposite extreme. You know what? God's got nothing to do with it. It's all about what I can do and what I should do. But God has told us plainly in his word. He will heal us. He will save us. If you choose him. And if you give him your will. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for being the wonderful saviour to us that you are. If this sermon this morning was designed for no one else but myself, then praise be God. But if there happens to be someone here who has not chosen Jesus, has not wanted to surrender his or her will, Lord, we here as elders would be happy to pray for that one if that one is happy to come up front. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you for the wonderful interventions that you have done across our lives and, and we just look forward to more uplifting experiences as we go through this week and as we prepare to leave earth for the real kingdom of God. Thank you so much, dear Lord. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for empowering us. And thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray in your wonderful name. Amen. This message was made available by the Bunbury Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Bunbury SDA.